1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Here I learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. in New Guinea with the back bass. <laughs> well, there's your finger mark, mate. Holy hell! That's an enormous finger mark. Mention Peter Morse's name to just about any fly fisher in Australia, and you'll immediately have their attention. Peter was one of the first people to pioneer fly fishing in the vast continent, and he has since done his part to maintain that role. Author of three books, certified mastercaster, television personality, and well-traveled angler, he is a man I simply had to get to know better. I took the New South Wales train to make my way from Sydney to his home in Australia's Blue Mountains. In this episode, Peter opens up to me about his upbringing, his views on shark conservation, Australia's fishing industry, and the television show that made an undeniable impact in the land down under. So we're sitting here right now. We're in your fly tying slash... In my shed. In Australia, we would call this a shed. The man cave the shed. The man cave shed, yeah, yeah. Yep. It is fascinating. <laughs> it's my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And I'll be honest, you live a uh, a much more relaxed life than maybe I thought you would. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have that many assumptions about you coming into this. Uh, obviously, I know uh, about you. As soon as I moved here... Everybody asked me if I knew Peter. Your name just comes up all the time. So maybe you could just let anybody who doesn't really know what you do, maybe just let them know who Peter Morse is. Who are you? Um, 60-year-old, 
Caucasian male. <laughs> like long walks on the beach. <laughs> uh, um, fly fisherman, obsessed fly fisherman, and have been now for 40 years. Uh, born and raised in Fiji, in the tropics. Uh, grew, grew up fishing. Uh, my dad built a couple of boats for the family. It was a hobby of his. He built boats, and we went fishing on the weekend, trolling heavy hand lines for mackerel and coral trout and trevally and basically fish that we caught to eat. Uh, but what I didn't know at the time is that my grandfather was a fly fisherman and dad had also been a fly fisherman. And, you know, it's one of those, if only we'd known at that stage that saltwater fish could actually be educated into eating <laughs> flies. Right. Uh, but we didn't. And um, uh, so I, I, I grew up fishing, but I didn't come to fly fishing until I was 20. And... I mean, it's <clears throat> one of the things I, I see a lot of is people encouraging children to get into fishing, but into fly fishing. Getting into fishing is fantastic, but getting into fly fishing, I think we can push it a little too hard, a little too early. And I know that from my own children, from my own experience. There are some children who take to fly fishing at a very early age. They have the gene and they see someone fly casting and they just want to do it. And then there are, I guess, the vast bulk of us who come to it a little later in life. I inherited uh, a split cane fly rod from my grandfather. Awesome. And I picked up this thing and wiggled it and thought, yes, I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. And I went and tried to cast this thing. It was an old hardy pelicana with a silk line that hadn't been used for 25, 30 years and it was, I didn't even know how to thread it up. I mean, we'd fresh, newly moved to Sydney. And I didn't know anyone in Sydney. And I strung this thing up and went down to the park and pretty quickly worked out that if I was going to do this thing, I would need to upgrade. So I went and bought a fiberglass rod and a, uh, a scientific angler's air cell fly line. Right. No graphite at this time. No graphite. Just early days of graphite. Early, early days. It was a hardy jet fly rod. Um, my next rod was a graphite rod, uh, and that was a Fenwick HMG. And I taught myself to cast, and that was a long process. But, you know, being someone from the islands um, uh, with a family trout fishing background, I was drawn to the mountains, and I travelled to the snowy mountains and learned, eventually caught a trout, then caught more and more, and then I became, I, I uh, from the Fiji days, uh, there was a girl I knew in Sydney, Lizzie Robertson, and her boyfriend at the time, now her husband, Gordon Dunlop. I love Gordon. You know Gordon? Of course. We, yeah. we cast at the park every week. We're okay. going marlin fishing in the next few weeks. Okay. Yeah, okay. I love Gordon. I'm going marlin fishing with Gordy too. <laughs> awesome. Well, Gordy, Gordy first introduced me to saltwater fly fishing. Oh, cool. So I used to go down to Balmoral Beach with a spin rod and catch Taylor and salmon off the rocks there at the northern end of Balmoral Beach when you were allowed to fish there. And wondered, I wonder if I can catch these things on fly. And didn't do it, but I met Gordon, and we went casting in the park, and I went fishing with him. And he was the first guy I saw who could really cast. Phenomenal caster, Gordy, and using a shooting head contraption thing. Yeah. And throwing <laughs> it out of sight over the horizon. Right. And I caught my first uh, saltwater fish 
Fishing with Gordon. It was on New Year's Day, 1977, and it was a, a kingfish, a yellowtail kingfish. Oh, awesome, yeah. In Pitwater, surrounded by New Year's Eve revelers who, were, <laughs> who had obviously gone right through the night yeah. and were starting up again. Yeah. <laughs> and I was cheering and clapping as I caught this yellowtail kingfish on a trout rod. Because they wouldn't be fly fishing back then. Not very many people. In the very 70s. few people. We never saw, never saw another fly fisherman on the harbour. Because even today, when I go, because yeah. we do a lot of uh, fishing in the harbour for kingies. Yep. And even today, there's not that many people fly fishing. It's mostly conventional gear. I'm surprised because I know speaking to Justin Doug and the guide on the harbour. Yeah. There's a lot of guys, and, and, and you know, I know there are schools of salmon and kings that are surrounded by guys who are only fly fishing, but back then there was no one. Right. Just no one. So we, we flew by, and from then on I, I became obsessed with saltwater fly fishing. But uh, I'm glad you're fishing the harbour. Oh, yeah. yeah well, it's just excellent. so easy with us being in Manly. It's yep. super easy to get on a boat and just yep. go. Wonderful. But uh, to go back to your original question, <laughs> isn't fly fishing wonderful? You go off down these... <laughs> Down these paths that lead into all sorts of things. But I, um, I've been fly fishing. I started writing for magazines and taking photographs in the early 80s. And I still did a lot of trout fishing at that time. And the, the one thing I was good at school was writing and English and comprehension. It was the one thing I was good at. I have no tertiary qualifications. Uh, I did get a good education, but I discovered surfing and and uh, other things <clears throat> after school. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and sort of went off the off the track a bit for a few years there. And um, in the late nineteen eighties, I I started fly. I said uh, I, I got divorced. I got married, divorced, and I just said I'm just going fishing. That's what I'm doing. That's me from now on, and I've sort of managed to scratch a living from it for many years. And recent years, things have got a bit better, but it's still, it's still a lifestyle thing, mm-hmm. you know. It's still, yeah, you, you you do this so that, well, someone said to me, what are you going to do when you retire? And I said, I can't retire. To retire, you have to actually have started working, and I've never actually started <laughs> working. It's all I've ever done, right. you know. So, so there is no retirement plan. I'm right. just going to keep fishing until I drop, and I hope it's on a flat somewhere, on a bonefish flat. And so that's what I've done. I, I, I worked. I had a very successful television series, and I've written a few books, and I write a lot for magazines. I teach fly casting. I'm a master instructor with the International Federation of Fly Fishers, and I teach fly, fly fly casting and fly fishing, and I travel a great deal. I host trips. I don't do a lot of that these days um, uh, because I enjoy fishing too much to get bogged down in hosting trips with difficult people and you know, I just want to fit. I used to guide, and I stopped guiding for the same reason. Mm-hmm. I want to fish, and I, I get got very frustrated showing people opportunities that I hadn't had, right? And that stuff it up. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. And I just the frustration. I let my feelings show, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I realised that guiding wasn't for me. I don't that I'm you know. St- 
stick to what you know and what you do do well and that's been my philosophy so I I write I take photographs I teach that's my core business I promote Sage I've been involved with Sage for many years and um, I, I'm their ambassador in this part of the world and that's um, yeah that's me well, you're not getting off that easy <laughs> because a Uh-oh, lot of people. Oh, comes the digging. <laughs> well, a lot of people say to me that you were one of the pioneers of fly fishing, and you know, I'm going to be completely honest with you. For me, and maybe this is you know why for me, I don't think that I see a lot of fly fishermen out there because in the states, fly fishing is huge, and in North America, I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. Fly fishing is huge, mm-hmm. and out here, it just feels. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but it feels like the industry when it comes to fly fishing, is behind in Australia. And I would even go so far as to say, I feel it's like 20 years behind. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're pioneering this in the 70s and 80s, that's a pretty decent time period to be pioneering. you got something to say. Spit it out. What do you yeah, think? No, I'm, I'm, I understand your, the comment about 20 years behind. Uh, we have completely different fish species here. Mm-hmm. We have completely different fisheries, and and I, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, flats fishing in Australia. Most of the fishing I do is saltwater. Um, flats fishing in Australia is very much in its infancy. Our trout fishing. I mean, uh, the lake fishermen in Tasmania are world class. They're exceptional. They're some of the best fishermen yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah, exceptional anglers in lakes. We don't have the rivers, so in trout fishing terms, we simply don't have that culture of fly fishing in rivers. I mean, you've seen the things that we call a river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, I can't even swim in your rivers because yeah. a bull shark might eat me. In yeah. the ones that we're fishing in. Or a snake might yeah. come and join you, or a platypus will spur you. Right. Or, yeah. yeah, what we call rivers are just a ditch or a creek in the US or Canada. Right. And so that river fishing culture is not very strong. If we want to fish rivers, we go to New Zealand. Well, I've got to back you up a minute here, because I'm on the coast, so I'm on the East yeah. Coast. So mm-hmm. for me, when we're fishing rivers, they are literally pouring into the into the ocean. They're mm-hmm. tributary directly to something that's... It, they're salt water. They're not mm-hmm. fresh water. Mm-hmm. Now, out here, you're in the Blue Mountains, right? Mm-hmm. Are the rivers out here legitimately freshwater streams? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, got it. Um, just about the Blue Mountains, the, the catchment here is all east-flowing into the ocean. Um, uh, this is not the watershed. The watershed is actually west of here. The Blue Mountains are uh, an upthrust sandstone plateau. It's fairly infertile. We have no rivers on top here. It's a very small catchment. And we can walk 100 metres from here and the escarpment will drop off 2,000 feet. I'll show you later. It's pretty spectacular. So the rivers, I mean, there's a little creek in this gully here and it's a kilometre long. So that's all. You know, and they flow through bedrock country. Mm -hmm. It's all sandstone. It's bedrock. There's no gravel. There's no life in them. You know, there's a few uh, yabbies, or what you would call crawdads, right. and little river fish. So there's uh, the Sydney's main water supply, which we can just see from here, uh, Warragamba Dam, the Cox's River flows into that. That has a spawning population of rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. It would have once held a fantastic population of bass, of our native bass. But now our many of our native freshwater fish are actually catadromous. 
in that they live in fresh water and they spawn in salt water. Oh, that's so interesting. So they're reverse, they're the reverse of yours. So when they move back up into the rivers, if there's a dam, even if we put fish ladders, the little fry can't get back up. Of course. So it's a, com- a completely opposite thing. So we have, we have uh, yeah, very different fisheries. It's a very dry continent. Uh, you know, long periods of drought, the native fish have evolved to deal with that, the introduced fish have upset that entire system. It, it's, it's, it's not simple. It's not simple. Uh, but west of here, in the mountains, in what we call the Great Dividing Range, uh, you know, a thousand metres, three, four thousand feet is high. Mm-hmm. So we get snow perhaps in summer, every, in winter. Every few years, we might get a few flurries. We've actually had snow here in January, which is our midsummer. Wow, that's strange. Yeah, but then west of here, um, on the what we call the western slopes of the Great Dividing Range, which feed the inland rivers, the Murray-Darling Basin, in the headwaters there are trout. But now carp have pushed up into all of those waterways. Were they introduced, or are they yes. native? They're introduced. Oh, they're no, introduced. Okay. Carp and trout both introduced. There are no native um, uh, salmonids, and the carp, of course, are separate from that. But they have just taken over. I mean, now I fish for them. That's my summer. Fr- if I'm going to fish fresh water, right. I'll either go to New Zealand yeah. and fish trout, which is only three and a half hours from here. Why would you want to go to New Zealand? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I've, I'm just kidding. 30 years, I'm still trying to work it out. <laughs> but I want- or I go carp fishing. Well, let's. I'm going to back you up to to New Zealand and and back you up a little bit to the industry being behind, in my opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and it, this is why. So when I travel and mm-hmm. I tell people I live part time in Australia, mm-hmm. everybody wants to chat with me about New Zealand, and I love New Zealand and the fishing is sensational, but Australia has so many amazing fishing opportunities mm-hmm. here, and it kills me that people travel all the way to New Zealand. And they don't take a week to come fish in Australia. Yeah. And and maybe it's because of, of sheer lack of tourism that the industry feels like it's behind to me. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, the big issue is that, of course, New Zealand is a trout fishery. There's very good saltwater fishing in the north of the North Island. Exceptional saltwater fly fishing. So it's a summertime fishery. Summer in Australia, in, the, in our... I mean, you just by all means go to Tasmania, uh, where you're going to fish lakes, and you're going to have spectacular lake fishing if you're a trout fisherman. The rest of Australia, our, the, the, our core species are probably saltwater, mm-hmm. um, and that is a wet season throughout the tropics. So you, you're going to run into very high humidity, right. extreme heat, uh, hurricane, what you would call hurricanes, what we call cyclones. Right. Lots of bad weather. Um, and just difficulties. You can't fish off the shore because the crocodiles are going to get you. <laughs> yeah. You wade in the water, the, you know, the sharks are going to get you. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nasty things in our water. The blue so ring you, octopus. The, blue, there's, the there's box jellyfish, the irukandji. Oh. It just goes on and on. So you need a guide. Yeah. You need a boat. Most of the guides throughout northern Australia shut down in the wet season. Okay. That's their time off. Uh, the lodges shut. What are the That's months like of the wet winter. season? So wet season really begins late November okay. and goes through until April, 
I mean, you can still get late hurricanes in April. Mm-hmm. By May, it's all over. But by May, New Zealand's finished. Mm-hmm. So that's why we don't get that overlap. And peop, trout fishermen or fly fishermen going to New Zealand, generally, we go, you go to New Zealand to fish the rivers. And we can't offer anything that's comparable no. of quality because the quality in New Zealand is, is fantastic. Uh, we can't offer anything comparable as far as fishing is concerned. We could offer something different. Right. You know, some, a totally different landscape, totally different wildlife. I mean, you go into a forest in New Zealand and it's silent. There's no bird life. Here, you're going to see... I mean, I can lie in bed here in the morning and count 13 different bird songs from my bed. Right. So someone coming here needs an interest. They might want to see platypus. Right. Kangaroos, wombats. Our wildlife is incredible. Our snakes, we've got tigers, blacks, browns. Copperheads, all venomous. <laughs> Come to Australia to see all the snakes that want to kill you. <laughs> all the things, yeah. So it's very different. Yeah, New Zealand is a very benign country. It's yeah. very safe. This is a very different environment. But that's one of the reasons why I was always drawn to Australia, mm-hmm. is I love when I'm fishing, even when I'm bass fishing on the coast, mm-hmm. and you know, all of a sudden the silence erupts and some dolphins come through in a river while I'm bass fishing. Or, you know, my husband was fishing a topwater lure for for bass and caught a bull shark. I mean, go figure that you're bass fishing and you're catching bull sharks. And that's exciting to me. Yeah. Is that that it's so different? But what about locals? I mean, tourism is one thing, but what Mm -hmm. about the locals? So every night we go to the park and we cast. Mm -hmm. And it's astounding how many local people or just residents of Australia don't realize that you can fly fish for sharks and other species. It's been the story of my life right? because I cast on the road out the front of my shed where we're sitting in here. <laughs> yeah. I've got target spray painted on the road there. <laughs> and I get a big passing parade of people and cars pull up and say, oh, where do you trout fish around here? And I say, I don't. Yeah, we're, we're a long way behind um, our understanding of fly fishing. And this has been my crusade. I mean, we're getting to the, I guess, to the core of what I do, and that is... That is that uh, fly fishing is, a, is about a delivery method. It's not about a particular species. It's not based around species. And getting people to understand that is, is, uh, is a battle. Even, even long-term fly fishermen, I know plenty of them who will only fish for trout. They will only fish for trout in Australia. But why? I, mean, I do not know. I do not know. It's. I, I, I guess there's a. There's. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's seen as they're seen as a superior species. They're seen as being a some kind of link with the old country. Yes, there is something lovely about drifting a dry fly, a size sixteen dry down a bubble line, and I enjoy it myself. But there's so much else in fly fishing, and and. It's it's a constant battle to mm-hmm. encourage people, even carp. You know, I, I did a fly fishing school recently, and there was an old boy on the school who fly fished for thirty five years. Right, thirty five years, all he'd ever caught were carp, a boy a trout. I'm sorry, he'd never seen his backing in his life. And we were on a lake, and there was some tailing carp. Made a cast, he hooked the carp, and there was his backing. He'd never seen his backing. The carp's 15 pounds, bigger than anything he'd ever... He said, I had no idea. 
Did he convert after that? Converted. Of course he Simple. did. Simple. Just like that. Well, here's yeah. what I'm interested in. Now, you had a very, very successful television series. Mm-hmm. And I've watched it on YouTube. It's, ex- it's excellent. It's okay. Wild Fish, right? Mm-hmm. Now, how many seasons did that run for, and when did they run? Uh, this was through the 90s. So we started in about 95. It ran through until 2000. It was 26, 213 episode series mm-hmm. and then they were repeated so it ran for 52 weeks all up over a period of five or six years and you had a primetime television spot primetime eight eight o'clock tuesday night okay excellent did you notice a difference in the amount of people fly fishing then big upsurge and then what's happened since it's not airing anymore okay so this was after a river runs through it and there was also another very successful show on the abc our uh, national state-run broadcaster called A River Somewhere, okay. which was hosted by two very funny, very intelligent, very witty fellas. <laughs> Aussie guys. Uh, Aussie guys, yeah. Rob Sitch and Tom Gleisner. And that was running concurrently, and it was enormously popular. It was on uh, on the ABC, as I said, and was heavily promoted. They were well-known before that. Very funny guys. Uh, have you seen the movie The Castle? I don't think so. Oh, you should. Is yeah. it an Australian movie? It's an Australian movie. It was, it's brilliant. Is and it better very than successful. <laughs> No, very different. It's very okay. funny. It's a wonderful slice of Australian life. Real Australiana. Great. If you want to understand this country, <laughs> go and get, take out The Castle and watch it. Okay, it's I will. brilliant. Well, that made that. So they were very well known. They produced it. Very well known. So this was running concurrently with the Wildfish series soon after um, a river runs through it. Mm. So there was a big upsurge in fly fishing. A lot of people went out and bought fly rods, but there was no one teaching it. Oh. So uh, there, no, was, there was there was a no vacuum. YouTube. There was a hole. There was no YouTube. Of there was not. no yeah. So they bought fly rods. Shops stocked with fly fishing rods. The next big thing is fly fishing. They stopped fly rods, but they had no one on their staff who could fly fish, who oh. knew, understood it. So the stuff sat there for months. Oh, no. And now they won't touch it. Or, you know, that, uh, uh, yeah, so they won't stop fly fishing stuff, but now most of it's bought online. So there was just a vacuum after the series of... Uh, and, and the other thing that happened at the time is that we discovered soft plastics. <laughs> you know, there was the big, the rubber tail lure. I don't know, what do you call them in the U.S.? Soft plastics. I, I don't know what they call rubber them. Rubber tails. I, I never fished them until I got here. Okay. <laughs> I love fishing so soft plastics. So we've corrupted you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm adding to the problem, not the solution. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> so there was that big boom happened at the same time. So the guys who bought fly rods couldn't, couldn't cast, couldn't catch fish, picked up their soft plastic rods and could just start catching fish at will. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like bait fishing. So they that boom lasted for a long time and is still going, but a lot of those guys, mm-hmm. or a, a, a proportion of them, all carry fly rods now, mm-hmm. and they will, fish fly, they will fish fly, but they still have their soft plastic rod. There is... Without question, a boom in fly fishing going on at the moment. Yes, there is, yeah. There is, without question, there's a whole generation, the Gen Y, I suppose, if you want to call it that, 
discovering fly fishing all around the Australian coast, not so much in the trout countries, but around the coast. We have an immense coastline. I forget how many thousand kilometres long it is. Australia is the size of continental US. People don't realise that. And it's all ours. It's all our Mm -hmm. coastline. So it varies from nine degrees south of the equator to 42 degrees south of the equator. It's very big. It's huge. It's huge. So we have this immense, empty, tropical coastline with no fishing pressure, with incredible fishing. And all around that coastline, there are guys picking up fly rods and catching fish and developing fly fishing independent of what's going on elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about saltwater fly fishing in the U.S., we're talking about uh, you know, you're talking about tarpon, uh, your permit, trachyonotus, falcatus, bonefish, redfish, stripers. Essentially, that's it. Here we're talking uh, 32 species of trevally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think 15 species of mackerel. We're talking about two species of permit. We're talking about barramundi, mm-hmm. all our various salmon. Uh, fish that are getting on the flats that flats that have never seen fishermen, let alone fly fishermen, that, that people divert around because they're a navigational hazard or have been up until now. So we're uncovering fishing here, and it's just going on in all these little coastal backwaters. And you need to be online on Facebook and friends with some of these people to see some of the stuff they're catching because mm-hmm. it's fantastic. And that is actually very exciting. And that stuff that's going on independent of the old-fashioned fuddy-duddy trout fishing scene. (laughs) These guys really are doing a lot of reinventing of fly fishing. So there is, and and perhaps you're not familiar with that. Perhaps you are. I don't know. Yeah. You need to go out and see some of the stuff that's going on. Doing my research around here, and I mean, I'm learning about species I didn't even know existed. Didn't even know existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll come back to that. I Again, I'm going to bring you back to your film. Mm-hmm. To why, the Wildfish series, yeah. Yeah, why'd you stop? <sighs> Television. You know... You mean it's not as glamorous as everyone thinks it no, is? No, 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 no. <laughs> we, we, we could do another series right now. But we would be on a Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock and we could pay the television channel $30,000 for a half-hour slot. We would have to pay them. Right. So therefore, to get that $30,000 back just just to pay for that slot, for that useless Sunday afternoon slot, we need to raise $30,000 per episode in sponsorship. Right. Which means the whole program is about me saying, look at this wonderful new blah, blah, blah rod I'm using, and look at this reel, and look at this line. There's not enough money in fly fishing in Australia to do that. So we'd need to use spin gear, bait casting gear, game fishing gear. I would rather poke out both my eyes with a blunt burning stick <laughs> than do that sort of television. Yeah, I want to make documentaries. Right. I want to make interesting things that engage with people, that that educate, that entertain. And uh, you know, when when we first did the Wildfish series, I wrote the narration for it. And I was told that you must write the narration as though you're speaking to a 15-year-old. And I said, bullshit, no way on <laughs> earth am I doing that. I am not going to offend 
the viewers who are going to be watching this at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night by writing that kind of crap narration. So it was written for... A, Mature. It was written for my audience, for the people I'm talking to. Yeah. And I, that was one thing, I guess, that connected, that, that, that was appreciated. Now to do television again... I mean, we, we, I've shot three pilots for three new series that were, were all knocked back. Mm. Now, I'll give you an example of what happened on one of them. We were on flats on a remote Pacific atoll in a community that wants to set themselves up like Christmas Island. Oh, okay. okay so is this in Australia? No, this is in uh, Kiribati, uh, Republic of Kiribati, okay. way out in the mid-Pacific, like Ireland, uh, an island 30 kilometres long with 12 villages. Wow. And each village of re- different religious denomination with their own church. I mean, and a huge lagoon with bonefish flats. So they've seen, I mean, the people of Christmas Island are the most, uh, let's say, they're the highest earning income, uh, highest earning people in the entire Republic of Kiribati or Kiribati, which is the islands of the mid-Pacific there, Micronesia, basically. Right. So the people on this other island have said, well, we want a slice of that. We want to set up fishing camps here with guides and so on. So we went there and we filmed this whole program about uh done with a fellow called gavin platts to i've heard of gavin platts. gavin yeah to introduce fly fishing to get rid of the nets because they right. net the bonefish and and so on and we made this wonderful program about that and then when we showed it in in one part of it one clip we had a big barracuda come in and look at us and I grabbed a fly rod, thrown a, had a rod ready for GTs, thrown a hook this thing up, and of course it's bitten me off. I didn't have wire, and the television people said that was a barracuda. That's dangerous. You should have made something about how dangerous that was and how your <laughs> lives were being threatened by this barracuda. It was going to eat you. It was going to bite your legs off. <laughs> Crap! When I see things like river monsters, you ever see that? Garbage. <laughs> With the catfish eating you? Garbage. <laughs> it is garbage. That is not what fishing is about. But that's what the television stations think their viewers want to see. Right. And I won't do it. I would rather starve <laughs> than present fishing like that. I just right. won't do it. So we made three pilots, and they were all knocked back, and that's okay. They, you know, I don't care. You know, I'm having a wonderful life. Yeah, especially making the pilots. It's funny that you should say that because I I just finished wrapping up my series. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's the same here, but in North America, there's two ways of doing television. Either you pay for the airtime. Yep. And then you obviously recoup your money by finding sponsors for commercial time. Mm -hmm. Or the network buys you. And in my situation, the network bought us. But Mm -hmm. what that also means is that they own you Mm -hmm. to some degree. And, of course, they were pretty good to work with, and I've Mm -hmm. got to be very careful (laughs) right now. But um, when I wrote the series and and when I wrote the narration as well, it was, Mm -hmm. again, too mature. And it was, I hate to say this, but it was almost too, I was told it was too smart or too intelligent, and Mm -hmm. I had to, quote, dumb it down. Dumb it down, And that was very difficult for me, and I was able to do it just by simply changing my vocabulary but maintaining the message. Yeah. But it, um, television is definitely a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. 
especially because it's not just as simple as going out making a few casts. You have to you have to write the series. Of course, there's the filming and editing, but pitching it and sponsors and the promotion and the marketing and then trying to maintain your message while not losing your integrity. It's a lot of work. So filming, was, yeah, filming generally. That yeah. did shots from this angle, that angle. It's not fishing. <laughs> it's it's a, and then and then yeah. if you're like me and you refuse to you know redo a hook set yeah. or you refuse to I did one um, I did an appearance years ago with some other show and they wanted to put this is this is no bullshit here they wanted to put a wet sponge on the end of my line and have me fight it like it was a fish and I just I'm not an actress I'm a fisherman you know it's just yeah. not going to happen yeah. so television for me is is interesting and I I thought that it was really well done that you actually got that many seasons out. Yeah. It was very, very popular. But I'll tell you what we did between the series when the first series <laughs> what? finished. We got a petition going. What do you mean? A petition amongst fishermen and fly fishermen to send to the TV channel to saying, would you please do another one? That was fantastic. Oh, did they listen? Yes, and they did it. Wow. Yeah, they did it. And it was very, very popular. And, yeah, so that, out of that we got a second series. I would love to do it again. I would love to do television again as I would like to do it. And with what I know now, I'm more comfortable and relaxed in front of it and not get too serious or self-important or, you know, just try and make good stuff. Yeah. And I'm, we're, we're, I'm actually doing I'm still working with the guy who produced the Wildfish series. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah. What are you doing? Um, we do uh, a DVD magazine called the fishing dvd which is like uh seven eight nine part stories it's a quarterly magazine done on a dvd and i present the fly fishing segment and it's backed by sage but we are we've got other plans but not for television um so anyway I, i can't talk too much about that now but but my days in front of a camera aren't over Coming up, Peter shares his thoughts on rock fishing, sharks, conservation, societal battles, and our inherent need to partake in fishing. Let's talk a little bit about fishing off the rocks. So something that I've found a new fascination with is rock fishing. Mm Mm-hmm. And every time I post a photo of me rock fishing, somebody yells at me on the internet about uh, it being dangerous and I need to be wearing a life jacket. First thing that comes to mind, yeah. Of course. It's the most dangerous sport in Australia. Is that right? Yeah. I really want to fly fish off the rocks. Is Mm -hmm. it possible? Absolutely. You're well equipped for that with your skills with the two-hander rod. Right. I was going to ask you about that. Mm -hmm. Now, how do I... I mean, those rocks are gnarly. They're really, really really jagged. Mm -hmm. How do I make sure they don't cut my running line? Uh... Bird netting. Oh, okay, so get like a laundry hamper? No, I see the bird netting over our veggie garden there. I do, yeah. So you buy that from a hardware shop, and it's cheap. Right. You put some lead sinkers around the edge of it, and you just drop it on the rocks, and you strip onto that. Brilliant, but now with double handing, I, mm-hmm. I often need to have to set some sort of anchor with mm-hmm. water, and obviously it's no, you'll too be o- you'll be overhead casting. What happens if the headland's steep behind me? Uh, you're gonna have trouble if you <laughs> can't get an anchor, right? Because you, yeah, that uh, short heads. Okay. Short shooting heads, head. shooting heads. Yeah, uh, you know, forty 
five foot long T14 mm-hmm. or T17. Right. That's what I'd be using. Okay, I'll look at Or, uh, you know, Skagit heads, chunky, chunky mm-hmm. things that, you know, but definitely overhead. Okay. Yeah, that... There's there's really nowhere, even off the beaches, it's all going to be overhead. There's really nowhere where you're going to be able to set up a proper anchor and a D-loop off the rocks, I'm afraid. Right, absolutely. Now, when mm. I was I was beach fishing a few days ago, mm-hmm. just uh, off, the, off the surf, mm-hmm. and it seems perfect for a double hand rod. Mm-hmm. Have you done any of that? Yes, I have. And how yeah, does it off work? Off the rocks and off the beaches, Yeah. and even on the flats, just to prove a point. Right. Uh, <laughs> um it's challenging uh, because of the surf break. Uh, you'll need a stripping basket. Okay. Uh, without question. The big problem, of course, is going to be line management. You know, the advantage that, uh, that uh, a two-hander gives you is distance and line management on the water with men's and so on. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to retrieve. If you're throwing 130 feet, 140 feet, you've got to retrieve 100 feet of line. Yeah. That's a lot of line to manage. Mm-hmm. Um and that's the big problem. That's why you won't see a lot of people doing it. Okay. But I've done it, and there, there's uh, there's a few guys who are really specialising in it. There's a guy on the New South Wales South Coast called Dave Longen, okay. who only fishes two-handers off the beaches and rocks. Oh, wow. And All he, right. And he's, uh, he is apparently very, very good at it. Um, but, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess fly fishing off the rocks... Uh, is for me it's it's just too dangerous if you can find a reasonably safe rock ledge you know, there's going to be other people there mm-hmm. and once you start having t14 and clouds and minnows swinging around people get upset right so finding a decent ledge and of course the best fishing happens when there's a bit of swell mm-hmm. not when it's flat calm of course so that's when you get the turbulence and the movement and the, the food's being dislodged from the rocks and the, the bait fish are trapped up in the white water or the fish are in the gutters on the beaches, you know, in the deeper water that's made by the flow of the surf. That's when you've got your best fishing, and that's, of course, when it's most dangerous. So right. It's, yeah, it, it's a challenge. I've done it, but you, uh, I, your mind is so constantly on the ocean and the waves that may be coming... When I fish, I like to just drop into a zone. Mm-hmm. You'd know that zone very well, I'm sure. The hunter zone. The yeah. hunter zone, where that's all you're doing. And if I've got to worry about every second or third wave, I just can't get into that zone. Yeah, it's tough. You know, if you're wading a big river and you've got to cross that river, you can get out of that zone to cross the river. But once you get back on the bank, you're dropping back into that hunting zone. Um, on the flats in Australia... It's a worry because of sharks, but you know you you can see them coming, and they're not as dangerous as a well, crocodiles are dangerous, but they're not as dangerous as that rogue wave or that one freak wave. Right. Because you go in off that, and you're in trouble. You've seen what the rocks are like. They're yeah. frightening. Yeah. They're frightening. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much power in those waves. So much power in the waves. You really should wear a life, an inflatable life vest. Get away from the rocks. Never fish by yourself. You know. Make sure there are other people around, you know, whistle, you know, yeah. Yeah, precautions. Really, really precautions, yeah. Now, sharks. They did a study on sharks, and apparently the word shark is one of those words that gets people's hearts racing. 
And uh, I've been fascinated by sharks since I was a little, little girl. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the reasons I always wanted to come to Australia. Yeah. So last year I did a, a shark dive. I went yep. down to at, through Adelaide and, mm -hmm. and flew down. and With the great watch? Yeah, with the Rodney Fox group. And it was a life-changing moment for me. Mm -hmm. When I got here, I wanted to catch a shark. That's still there. I still want to catch the occasional shark, even mm -hmm. though it's frowned upon by some people. Um, <laughs> catch them and release them. Yeah. Catch them and release them. You can. You know? yeah. I don't think I'll be catching any great whites anytime soon. No. But when I found out about the shark call, the big calling they were having, mm -hmm. it was heartbreaking. Yep. And I'm just curious if you've fished for them, what's your thoughts on the conservation aspect? Have you gone diving with them? Any close calls? That's a lot in one oh, go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's yep. start with have you fished for them? Yes, yeah. Uh, uh, deliberately and... And on the flats, I will sometimes, if things have been a bit slow, I'll make the stupid mistake of throwing a crab fly at them, which they'll pounce on. A crab? A crab fly. Wow. Yeah, if I'm fishing for permit, then a, you know, a shark, and nothing's happened. I haven't seen a throw a fly in front of it. I did not think they would take a crab fly. Yeah, they love them. Are you talking Look, bronze whalers? What kind no, of there are a lot of different species, and there are many, many different types of, of reef sharks, black tip reef sharks, and... Uh, silky sharks. There's all. There are so many different species. Some will react very aggressively to a fly, uh, and some will completely ignore it. Um, so, yes, I do fly, fly fish for them. I have fly fish for them, and always release them. But how do you release them? Because if you grab a shark, you, by the usually tail, just break the fly off. Okay, they'll it, get they'll get rid of the fly. Is it true that if you grab a shark by the tail, it can act? Because I have caught sharks on the fly, yeah, yeah, and they can turn their entire body around to still bite. They can spin around and bite you. Usually, the small ones I can grab them by the back of the head. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, even then they're still incredibly strong. Mm -hmm. You can usually grab them by the back of the head, get your pliers, and pull the fly out. If they're too big, I'll just break them off at the boat. But usually, because I'm not fishing with wire they usually you get a couple of good runs out of them and then they'll just wear through or they'll bite you off so you lose them anyway right um as for i have had some very close encounters with sharks when i've been fly fishing and we were charged by a bull shark when i was filming up on um uh, the northern outer great barrier reef in 2013 right uh, we had to cross a channel to get from one flat to another and there were three sharks in there and I thought they were shovel nose sharks which are harmless mm -hmm. and it was a bull shark and of course our splashing and this shark just came straight at me and I jumped in the air and it went under me I came down with my feet going like pistons and that's the second time I've had to do that the other one I was hooked up to a fish and that was a smaller bull shark and again I jumped in the air and it went under me the problem you have there of course is if they bang into your leg and, you know, they could bite an Achilles tendon or even though you're in shallow water or your calf and you go down and there's blood in the water and you're thrashing, then it's all over. Mm -hmm. So they are dangerous. Uh, I probably wouldn't want to be on the flats with a tiger shark no, if I was waiting. Hell no, hell no. And I've had friends who have had to get to their boat very quickly when a big tiger moved in. Hammerheads are hammerheads usually go on the flats to feed on stingrays, and I've had a an extraordinary encounter with a hammerhead in the Northern Territory. Which can I tell that story? Please. Uh, I was wading ashore from I'd been dropped off by a boat, and I was wading ashore, 
and I was we were dropped off about a hundred meters from the shore. It was a very rocky bottom and slippery rocks like like bowling balls and uh, with a friend of mine, and we were about halfway to the shore, and the boat was slowly pulling away and I heard the call of shark and I'm going, oh yeah, here we go. I look around and here's this dorsal fin that would have been two feet high. So this would be an oceanic hammerhead then? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't I didn't get to ask it. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I, anyway, we were walking and we'd a freshly applied sunscreen and there was a big oil slip coming off the sunscreen where we were walking and this thing was zigzagging up our oil slick. And I said to my mate, whatever you do, do not run. Because we've got 50 metres to go. We'll probably fall over. We've just got to keep walking. And if it comes up to us, we'll turn and face it with our rods and hopefully poke it off. Anyway, they're watching this thing and it's, zig- and it's zooming in on us. coming in so fast. And it would have been, I guess, a fly line from us. 100 feet out and a little stingray jumped out of the water and it ate the stingray in front of us and I had this vision of this hammerhead coming out of the water facing at us with the stingray in its mouth and the stingray's tail just going just whipping all around the shark's head oh my god (laughs) and it was probably hunting stingrays but and that's what they do, they feed on stingrays they love to feed on stingrays I don't know if you heard the story recently of the hammerhead that they killed in Florida that had 280 stingray spines in its head. No. So, yeah, yeah, all encrusted and embedded in its head over its lips, a big hammerhead. So when people talk to me about the fish feel pain, I just tell them about that. Yeah. So, but anyway, that was that was a pretty scary moment. Um, I've had other encounters with sharks, but you ask me about shark conservation... Um, I think that when you enter the water, you enter the food chain. Uh, that's the way I view it, um, tragically it is, as it is. There is no shortage of people on the planet, but there is a shortage of, of high-end apex predators. Right. And that's the way I view it, as sad as it may seem, or as controversial as it may seem. On the one hand, those, those big great whites are following the whales down the West Australian coast on their migration. Now, the other side of it, of course, is that we've removed a lot of fish from the ocean that sharks would normally feed on. And uh, sharks being so protected these days, I guess the shark population is growing. However, on the other hand, on the other hand, I am for a certain amount of harvesting of sharks uh, because, for example, in the Exmouth Ningaloo area, uh, you, you lose 10 fish to sharks for every one landed. So what we're doing there in trying to catch, say, mackerel, for example, every mackerel we hook, we lose to sharks. So we're killing 10 for every one landed, or 10 fish. If we go fishing, we're killing 10 fish for every one we might get to land. Now, that seems to me to be a terrible waste. Right. So the sharks become very used to the sound of, of um, you get the same up in Weeper, the sound of outboards. They know when someone's fishing. The moment a fish starts struggling, they're straight onto it. You cannot get a fish to the boat. Now, if we remove some of those resident fish that have learned to get that they will get a feed at the sound of an outboard, 
that's pulled up above them, above a patch of reef that they're resident on. If we get rid of those sharks, we will change that. I'm not saying get rid of sharks at all, but we need to think about culling sharks that have a certain behaviour pattern that is associated with us fishing. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, there's a lot of people who eat shark here. Or flake, yep. flake is that right? Flake, ba- yes. Baby sharks? Mm-hmm. And uh, the gummy shark. The gummy shark is a southern shark species. Oh, okay. That's so it's what it is. One particular species. It's a particular that we're species that is very good eating. It's delicious. Yeah, delicious. Is there any sort of market for um, these sharks that are being harvested right now, or that are being culled? Well, it would it would essentially be the shark fin soup market. It would be Ooh. a fin market, but in That's Australia, the law is scary market that they have to bring in the carcass of the shark. You can't. They must match every fin. With a carcass. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So you can't just dump carcasses at sea. You can't bring a shark in, kill it, fin it, and then just dump the carcass at sea. Mm-hmm. If you bring in 100 fins, you've got to have, if you're taking four fins from each shark, you've got to have 25 shark carcasses to match up to it. So the boats aren't going to, you know, and, and shark cartilage is used, um, shark teeth, jaws, whether the meat of some of the bigger bigger sharks is edible, I don't know. And one of the reasons hammerheads are so heavily harvested is because they have such big fins. Of course, right. You know, um, for the shark fin market. But, you know, it's controversial, but I do think that in some areas where sharks become a, a real problem, we need to do something about it. There is talk about the reintroduction of commercial shark harvesting in Exmouth. Now, I'll give you an example of the research that's done there. So they've been doing shark tallies there for, for I think, 15 years, ever since the, the shark fishery was shut down. And a friend of mine who works in a tackle shop there, or the scientist, goes in and says, we, want to, uh, we need to buy some bags of pilchards to burly up the shark so we can count how many sharks there are when we're diving. And burly is what you guys call... Chum. Chumming. Chum. Yeah. So they're going down with bags of pilchards and chumming these fish. Now, as my mate Ben said, if I want to chum for fish and I don't want the sharks to come in, I'll use pilchards. So you're chumming them with stuff that doesn't attract sharks. If you want to find out how many sharks there are there, go to the fish cleaning tables and get the buckets, get some big bags of reef fish frames Mm -hmm. and chum with them. They had to get out of the water. There were so many sharks that came in on them so quickly and so ferociously, they had to get out of the water. Right. So the science is wrong. The sharks are there. The population's there. The scientists doing the counting need to listen to the fishermen about how they should be doing their survey. Right. And they'll find that there's thousands of bloody sharks there. Well, we have a place up the coast out of Southwest Rocks, and we do a bunch of fishing up there. There's nobody there. And when I stand on the headlands and I look down, I can count so many sharks, it's astonishing. Mm. If we put a live bait out, you can count 50 minutes till you have a shark on. Mm -hmm. And so it was just really interesting for me to hear that the shark population was decreasing when there seemed to be so many sharks. Not here. Not around this country because they've been so protected. Okay. And I think there's an opening there for commercial harvest of sharks. Just Let's just keep the numbers... You know, I don't mean like it's happened in Asia, where they've just been totally fished out. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just have some common sense about this. You know, if it's costing us nine fish for every one landed, we can either stop fishing, right, 
which I'm not going to do, <laughs> or we can remove some some of the sharks. We can change the balance there because the balance is out anyway. You know, so that's 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 the way I view it. On the subject of conservation, have you fished the Great Barrier Reef? Yes, a lot. What's that like? Ah, oh, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I uh, there's a, a, a mothership operation called Nomad um, who run a a spectacular operation in the northern outer Great Barrier Reef and out in the Coral Sea, and very professional operation. And I fish with them every year. I host a fly fishing week on there and. Uh, some of it's been filmed, and we've made a movie there this year, which hasn't been cut yet. And uh, it's extraordinary. It is it is so untouched and so remote. Uh, it's a complex of green conservation zones and completely uh, and areas that you can fish in. And it's it's so big, and there's so little fishing pressure there that you know I, I had a day there. Uh, my most recent trip, where we found a flat where the trevally and the permit poured in on this flat on a rising tide, and there was a wall of trevally. Um, these are mixed different species of trevally. They're not big. Uh, they're up to sort of eight, ten pounds, and in behind this wall of trevally is this massive permit. You know, so you're casting over the Trevally to get to the permit, and it was an extraordinary experience. And then you fish the blue holes, which are in the outer barrier reef. So this is flats on the inside. Uh, so there's the outer reef, what they call the hard edge, where you know the outer reef drops away into a thousand fathoms. Then there's the um, the uh, the inner reef and all the reef flats, and then there's the coast. And there are no roads, there's no ports, there's no access. You can, If you go there by boat, you need to be equipped to last for weeks. Um, so on the outer barrier reef, you have... Uh, I mean, you need to get on Google Earth to get some comprehension of the size of the barrier reef and the size of some of the reefs out there. But then on the big outer reef platforms, you have what we call blue holes, which are... Uh, 15, 20 feet deep in these holes and they might be the size of a major football field or two football fields from the shallows, from the flats either side and then they drop into these holes and these holes are full of coral bombies. What's a bombie? A bombie is a, like a coral head. Oh, okay. A coral head and complexes of reefs and, and the fishing in there is unbelievable. Okay. Unbelievable. Where I mean, literally, this last time we stopped catching fish. It's all, it's all. If you're using anything lighter than an eleven weight, you're just not in the game. But why is this not a destination that we hear about it's in North America? It's so remote. Yeah, but a lot of places are remote. You, well, you. Can, I mean, no, 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 Nomad is there. They are online. There's lots of wonderful footage. Nomad is a very professionally run operation. Lots of footage of the GT fishing. That they have uh, on. The, I got some big GTs on this last trip on the flat site fishing permit. Uh, it's it's there online. Nomad N O M A D <laughs> Coral Sea. Look it up. <laughs> it's brilliant, it's brilliant. And I host fly fishing trips up there once a year. Uh, it's not cheap. It's a very difficult remote operation. Like it's fly in by seaplanes, and mm-hmm. you know it's 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 tough. It's a tough business to run. Yeah. But 
yeah, and you need to be switched on. You need to be up to the challenge. I've been on there when we've had Yanks, North Americans on board, mm-hmm. you know, guys who really travel the world and really fish. But it's it's in those blue holes, it's just hand-to-hand, 40-pound tippets, 11-weight rods, casting all day, take a wrap and hang on. Right. Because the coral is just there, and it's just there, and it's just there, and the fish are going straight back into the coral. Right. It's gripping stuff, hook straightening and six o hooks straightening and busting you off. Just busting you off. It's is, it's brilliant fishing. Is it similar to anything? I mean, you said you were born in Fiji. Mm. Were your parents Australian? Uh, yeah. Oh, mum's from Scotland, dad's Australian. Yeah. Oh, isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, yeah. So you were born in Fiji. Born in Fiji. And I think I heard that you went to boarding school in Fiji. Boarding school in Australia. In Australia. In Australia. Yep. Okay. So did you? Can you just? Tell me a little bit about growing up. When did you come to Australia? Uh, uh, what what year was it? Sixty six. Okay. I came to boarding school in Australia, and uh, we used to travel back and forth for our holidays. So I was twelve when I first came to boarding school. So I started fishing at five and grew, just basically grew up in the islands. But what were your parents doing in Fiji? Well, Dad worked for the CSR, the Colonial Sugar Refinery. Uh, as it was known then, South Pacific Sugar Mills, uh, as a, um, I, I guess, he ran the sugarcane harvest and all the big plantations. Right. And coordinated the harvest and looked after the farmers and all that sort of thing. And mum's family came from Scotland. Uh, mum grew up on the banks of the Spey River. Wow. <laughs> and... Her parents came out from Scotland during the Depression, and she stayed on back in Scotland and got an education. And then her parents came to New Zealand, and there was no work there, so her father got a job in Fiji. Now, can you imagine going from Scotland to Fiji? No. <laughs> <laughs> he was a boilermaker. And and then she came out there, I think just prior to World War Two, and they met in Fiji. Wow. And I was born there, and three sisters. And we... You know, we we just grew up in the islands. We were I'm a tropical person. Yeah. So the coral reefs and the islands and things like that are, are, are quite normal to me. Well, that's what I was figuring. I figured there was some sort of parallel there between the two. Yeah. Now, at 12, you came to boarding school. Boarding school, yep. So your parents stayed in Fiji, mm-hmm. and you were on your own at 12. Yeah. I'm going to get real nosy boarding here. school. I'm nosy. I want to know more about that. So mm. was it... Was There's not much to say, really. It was seven years of my life where I got an education, but... Uh, this was on the Gold Coast, uh, before all the canal development there, and and I used to fish in the river mm-hmm. and supplement the diet of horse meat and whatever they fed us, terrible food, yeah. <laughs> uh, with some nice fresh brim from the Narang River. But it was just, you know, we travelled back and forth for holidays twice a year, mm-hmm. and uh, when I guess when I was young, I went, spent... So we had three holidays. There was three terms then, or semesters as they call them. And for two of those, we would get flown back to Fiji. And for the other one, uh, by the company Dad worked for, and the other one, uh, I used to go on holiday on uh, with f- relatives on a farm in um, Western Queensland. So that was quite quite something. Yeah. yeah. But I, I I've got to ask you. 
I'm just going to pry into your psychology a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Because everybody gets into fishing for their Mm -hmm. own reasons. And Mm -hmm. it's usually so much more than, oh, my dad took me fishing. And you would have been spending a lot of time, I would imagine, on your own. Mm -hmm. Do you Mm -hmm. think that any of that would have drawn you into fly fishing? Do you think that fly fishing is a solitary sport? What's your take on it? Oh, very much so. Very much so. I love fishing. I love going fishing with friends. But as my friends, my regular fishing companions will tell you, I'll I'll leave them as soon as I can. Mm -hmm. And then you catch up later and... You know, share stories and so on. But I love, I fish by myself. Otherwise, I end up guiding. I have this guiding instinct. (laughs) And I'm like, stop it, stop it. No, catch the fish yourself. And I was on Christmas Island once and a fellow said, can I come fishing with you? And I said, sure you can, but I'm not pointing any fish out for you. If I see them, I'm going to catch them. He left me after an hour. (laughs) Well, did his own thing, but... I, look, I, I really believe that there is a fishing gene. Okay. I start to I talk about that more and more because I see it more and more. There is something in us, and I do not know what it is, and I have far greater minds than mine have pondered why we fish. And, yeah, I, I, I really can't get to the bottom of it. I, I, I'm not comfortable... I, I, I turned 60 last year, and now I can go for a time without fishing. And I do my fishing in intense one, two, three, four-week bursts. But in between, I don't need to go fishing. So I guess I've burned some of that out of me, that need to fish daily. Right. Um, uh, I go for quality rather than quantity these days. Good. Um, but I... I I, I, I simply do not understand this need to fish. I'll tell you something I read years ago, and I, I can't remember the name of the author or the name of the study, but they took a group of of 100 people, uh, 50 men, 50 women, put them into a, primitive, into a primitive community, and they came from all sorts of backgrounds. They were volunteers. And within... A fairly short space of time, and I, I forget the exact details of it. You like uh, uh, eight weeks. They started to perform in roles within that community that they hadn't performed in before. Okay, so some took up basket weaving, some became hunters, some became fishermen. Someone became the shaman or the witch doctor. So we, um, this community adopted primitive societal roles out of an instinct, and I would have been one of the fishermen. Right, right. You know, it's I I don't understand. Like some sort of a cycle, some sort of gene that is inherent. Yeah, I mean, a gene is too simplistic but there's something that draws us to the water and to fishing and to catching fish and yeah like there's something that draws people to hunting like there's something that draws people to to uh being uh, nurses to to being carers okay. or to to and, and i think the i mean the, the without doubt the key to a happy life is to find that thing right to find that thing and whether it's a hobby or a lifetime to be able to tap into it and to to harness it and to work with it whether it's, you know, look at painters, look at, you know, the instinct to paint, to create art is 
so strong in some people, you know, um, to mm. write or to paint or to create pottery or beautiful things. It's so strong, they can't not do it. You can't not do it. Right. So when I was a little girl, I mm -hmm. did um, Girl Guides. Do you mm -hmm. have that here? Girl Scouts? Boy Scouts, yeah. Girl yeah. Guides, yeah. I did nine years. And yep. then when I finished, I was actually a leader, and I taught mm -hmm. the little girls. Mm -hmm. And the people, the leaders, thought I was a little sick or, or deranged because there was this game that we would play. And, of course, you couldn't play this game now. But we'd play the, the stalking game. So they'd set all of us free into the forest, and there would be prey, and there would be stalkers. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, we'd pretend to be a cougar or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember being, I loved being the stalker. Mm -hmm. This sounds like I'm sick. Maybe I am no. a little, I don't know. But, you know, I'd be six, seven years old, and I was so excited to track these other little girls and to, to track another animal. To hunt. To hunt. to hunt, and it's been in yeah. it's been there in yeah. me since I was, is since for as long as I can I remember. And you you see the paths, you see the animal tracks and the trails, and you you look at a piece of water, and you know that's where the fish are going to be, mm -hmm. and it's like an instinct. And yeah. I, I I was just like that as a kid too. And it's never gone for me. Yeah. And so for me, even even if I'm not catching fish, I still need to stalk that mm -hmm. not just fish. Eagles, bear, anything that is there and alive, mm -hmm. I want to stalk it and get as close to it as possible without it knowing that I'm there. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is something that we're born with. I think so, and I think so, and I, and I think if you'd been in that community... I'd be a fisher. You'd be a fisher. Yeah. It's as simple as that, you know. And we can't, we can't avoid that. And the problem I have with the way society is going these days is that we have this huge push to shut down fishing i mean not so much in u.s you guys have got the guns you guys can fight someone tells you you can't fish and you're legally allowed to fish then you you have the numbers and the culture to avoid that but we have this growing culture in australia of people saying you can't do that you can't go there we're going to stop you we're going to make laws that are going to stop you fishing but now it's why? not not directly not saying you can't fish fishing is illegal we're going to close down this area to fishing. So we eventually end uh, up with nowhere to fish. Marine parks. Marine parks. Okay, got it. Okay. Which is tough. I mean, I, I, I balance on a fine line there because mm. I understand marine parks, mm -hmm. but I also know that for people to really want to protect something, they have to genuinely respect it. Yeah. Now, of course, out here you have divers, snorkelers, surfers, so you're still getting that group of people who understand and respect it. For me, it gets down to fisheries management. This this whole issue of fisheries is about management. It's not about banning people. It's not about stopping people doing things. And the bulk of these people who want to do this are live in inner city. They are so disconnected from nature. Mm -hmm. Unless it's nature as something purely observable, they're not involved in it. So there's this tremendous disconnect. I mean, I'm... I, I'm I, I want to see our fish thrive selfishly so I can go fishing. But is that a bad thing? I don't think so. Um, fisheries for me is about management. It's about studies, fishing pop, fish populations, understanding their movements. I mean, for example, they've banned squid fishing in North Sydney Harbour. Squid fishing. Squid are one of the most populous fish in the waters. There are millions of them. They have a one-year lifespan. They're delicious eating. They're excellent. 
They're excellent, but they've stopped people fishing for squid because the fairy penguins eat them, apparently. But squid come and go. They're pelagic. If people don't understand the movement of fish, okay, marlin are migrating down the east coast at the moment. If you went out marlin fishing in winter, you wouldn't catch a marlin fishing. So so they might do their survey in midwinter. Have you caught any marlin? No, we haven't. Oh, the marlin population is under threat. But they haven't done the marlin survey in summer. Yeah, we went out today and we saw 15. We caught four and we released them. That's a different thing. So when you do your survey, how you do your survey is a completely different thing. You know that? Yeah, so we have all those issues. So so the science is slanted to towards conservation without being real and practical. So they'll use East Coast science on the West Coast, whereas the two are dissimilar, so dissimilar. So this is the problem I have with the movement that's going on at the moment to ban fishing. I mean, ban fishing. There's this great group of people who just want to ban stuff. Right. You know, oh, people are having fun. Let's ban that, you know. <laughs> God's sake, we were fly casting in Centennial Park in Sydney. One Saturday afternoon, we had a fly casting day there, and we turned a bunch of people turned up. We had 60 or 70 rods, and everyone's fly casting. There's people riding horses, there's people riding bikes, there's people driving cars, there's three people throwing cricket balls, there's people running around doing all sorts of things. But we were told to pack up because fly casting or fishing is dangerous and you cannot do that in here. But it's yarn on the end it's of your yarn, line. It's yarn, explain it. No, people are complaining that you're fishing. We're not fishing, we're on the grass. For God's sake, we're on the grass. We're not on the water. So, yeah, there's this, <laughs> there's this whole nanny state thing, you know. It is a nanny. It, it definitely a, has a, a nanny state nanny feel state. around here. <laughs> Everyone's sticking their nose into your business. Oh, you can't do that there. That's not allowed. You know, I'm so sick of it. So fishing is part of that. Fishing, and, we, and we've got to fight against that. And we need to educate those people. But we need fisheries management above all. I mean, that's the most important thing we can have. Do you think you need more advocates? We need more advocates. We need... We're, we're finally getting together, you know. The, the is social media helping that? Social media is helping that enormously. There, there there's now a united body for recreational fishing in Australia that has that meets at a federal level with ministers, and we have a great minister now who is a very keen fisherman, you know, and they've done things like ban the super trawlers, and they're listening to us. They're listening to us, right? But it's at a state level and a local level where the problem exists and yeah social media helps and just pointing out the, the folly of some of this stuff just the stupidity of it you know that that's all we can do so yeah this is this is a cause but anyway where were we we were on boarding school yeah. how did we get there that's all right it's all part of it well, i only have a couple more questions for you yep okay so um regrets mm-hmm do you have any? I mean, you're one of those people who, when I meet you, you walk in, you look happy, you're confident, you're very well-spoken, you just look like a man with no problems. <laughs> you know, which is, you know, there's everyone has their problems. Yeah, but yeah. you're you have a great partner. I've met Monique. She's excellent. Yeah. You got a wonderful Wonderful house. woman. Yeah. Yep. You got great kids. You got a wonderful house. Your, yep. your man cave we're in right now is astounding. 
what is there in you that I might be surprised at? Or is there something that you wish you'd done that you hadn't or any regrets? Um, oh, absolutely, getting a tertiary education. Uh, everything I've done, I've learned on the go. I'm self-taught. I have a, a, um, there's a story I wrote years ago called You'll Work It Out. Okay. A short story? <laughs> a sh- yeah, a, a, true, a true story. A true story that I tell at casting days where so much of what we do in life, you know, we can learn to fly fish online. Everything is there. So people stop working things out. I, talk, I call it joining the dots. You find a fish here, why? You find a fish there for the same reason, why? Blah, blah, blah. So working things out. I'm a person who has to learn by working things out. I am a very poor student. <laughs> okay. I'm why? a very poor student. I'm not because I want to work it out myself. Yourself. I want to work this out because I, I know that in working it out, I will understand it a lot better. Whereas just being told, do this. I'll do this. Yeah, but why? <laughs> Are you stubborn? You seem like a stubborn guy. Yeah, pretty stubborn. Yeah. Pretty stubborn. I've learned through the becoming a an MCI, a master instructor, I have learned to learn, to listen, to shut up. You can't be learning and listening if you're talking. Right. <laughs> you know, that's been a really great journey for me. Good to know, yeah. Yeah. Um, By the way, congrats on that. That's a huge accomplishment. Yep, it's a lot yep. of work. There it is up on the wall. I know. I'm working <laughs> towards mine right now, and just seeing it, it just encourages me yeah, and inspires yeah. me. Thank Very you. Very happy to help you in whatever way, way I can. Thanks, Peter. But, um, yeah, certainly getting a tertiary education, and it's not too late for that, but I don't have time for it. Uh, I want to keep fishing. Um, uh, not, not much else. I, I live a wonderful life. I live a wonderful life. I, You know, I... I work for myself. I, I guess, I guess money. I mean, we could always do with more money. I have enough to get by. I can't afford to retire. Um, I just have to keep working, but that's okay. I just keep doing what I've done. I've got to stay healthy and fit. That's mm-hmm. a very important thing for me these days. I've, I, 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 I worked in the wine industry for many years. We didn't touch on that, and I used to drink a great deal. I love. Fine wine and food is my great weakness, and uh, so I've got to watch that. I cut back, cut way back, and I've got to stay fit and healthy. Um, that's very important to me to keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, that's my only issue, you know. Um, I guess the other side of things is turning 60. There is this idea that seems to uh, be around that oh, you're 60 now, you're over the hill, what would you know? Uh, but I know that fly fishing is one of those things that you never stop learning, that experience really does matter, really, really does matter. And there's this great gang of young guys, you know, always pushing at your back. I really enjoy fishing with young fellas because they their energy drags you along. Right. Yeah, and you can teach them stuff and, you know, you learn stuff from them, but their energy just drags you along. I really enjoy that. But... Um, um, yeah, turning 60, slowing down, but I'm staying fit. Look, I've got stuff on my calendar through until the end of 2016. I, I ain't slowing. It. I ain't <laughs> slowing down for anybody. Yep. Started my new book. Yeah. Uh, as a as somebody who's writing a book right now myself, and mm-hmm. definitely having the white page syndrome, where yeah. I, I am having a really hard time 
starting. I do start, but then I end up deleting and, and starting mm-hmm. from the beginning again. Mm-hmm. I just cannot seem to get the groove. Do you mm-hmm. have any words of wisdom? Because you've published three books now. Three books now, yeah. I'm working on a fourth. Yes, I do. Do not throw it away. No? Do not delete it. Just start writing. Just start writing and let it come. You've got to bang through that first couple of paragraphs. Then start to look for the groove. Find the common story. Get, but you've, you've, you've got to, in all of, doing all of that, what you're looking for is your opening paragraph, your opening sentence, your opening word. You've got to find that and then the rest will flow. Now, I sometimes find my opening paragraph in my third, fourth or fifth paragraph. And I might even find my closing paragraph in my first paragraph. So don't delete it. Okay. Keep it. I will stop Keep it. pressing the delete yeah. button. Keep. There will be good stuff in there. Okay. There will be good stuff in there. And the white page syndrome, these days, I just start writing. I just start writing and I will start making... Once you start writing, you stimulate the thought process and the memory and you keep a notebook by your side and make notes on what comes up or I'll go under where I'm writing and I'll just make a quick one, two words and then I'll return to what I'm doing and that will stay on the page and just keep moving down. But I think with the white page syndrome, just start writing you know that's you just have to do that and i know sometimes it stares at you and what a lovely morning this is yeah <laughs> start writing you know get it and and writing writing is very much like like anything else we do the more you do it the easier it becomes it's like practicing fly casting yeah the more you do it the better we become at it right uh, and you just and if you have a break from it, it's always more difficult to get back in it. I know once I get on a roll, and my my current book called A Few Great Flies and How to Fish Them started out as something completely different. I hear that from a lot of authors. Yeah, yeah, you've got to find this groove. There'll be a path. You talk about stalking things, mm-hmm. and that's what'll happen. A path will open up, and you'll start to see tracks. Oh, what a great analogy. And that's then the tracks will lead to roads and so on, you know, and next thing you'll be on a river. And there the flow is beginning, you know. So, so, And this is why you don't delete them, because they are the tiny little tracks of the mouse that begins, that leads to the game trail and so on. Ah, okay. So don't delete them. And you've got to look for them. And to do that, you've got to be open to them. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to be aware of them coming up. So my book started out as a a, a book on, a fly tying book. And I had wonderful people from all around Australia send me their flies, saltwater flies. And I've still got lots of them. Lefty sent me flies. Dan Blanton sent me flies. And, uh... Then I realized that everything is online these days. There is just no market for a book like that on flies without incorporating how to fish them. So the book evolved, oh. you know, and then you then once you get that solid idea in your head of what it's going to be, it'll just come, you know. That's when it's four in the morning, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> yeah. Don't talk to me. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Shut <laughs> up. <Yeah. laughs> 
Yeah. Well, great. I look forward to reading the new book. Yeah, thank you. Three more questions. Yes. One, anything you'd like to add today to our conversation? Not really. Okay. Not really. Do you have any questions for me? Um, I'd like to do that in another interview. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll do it. Yeah, well, uh, question. How are you enjoying Australia? I love Australia. Yeah, and Charlie's a lovely fellow. You must have a nice life with him. Yeah, things yeah, are I've excellent. Yeah, Charlie for a long time. Yeah, you guys go way back, huh? Way back. I met him at Sydney Airport. He was on his way to Chile to meet you. And he said, hey, did I tell you I'm getting married? <laughs> and I said, no, I didn't. I said, who's the, I said, who's the girl? He said, you would have heard of her. April Vokey. No, I said, no, <laughs> you old dog. <laughs> yeah, I, that, it's I laughed and laughed. Yeah, he had such a smile on his face when he told me. Well, you know, when we met, because we met in Norway, and yeah. um, when I, I've always known I'd lived six months in BC yeah. and six months somewhere warm. Mm-hmm. And I had just gotten back from Honduras, and I fell in There's love. Yeah, I fell in love with Rotan. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to buy a piece of property here. So I started looking around, found a couple places, and was prepared to start, well, prepared to buy a place there. And then it would have been a month later I met him, and I thought, well, it's going to be more expensive as far as travel goes, but uh, let's do it. So this is my six months warm. And what's so amazing about it here for me is the fishing has far exceeded my expectations. Mm -hmm. And the pressure is nothing like what I expected it would be. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just feel like I found my own little haven. But I feel kind of greedy just taking it to myself. So I do want to share mm. this experience in the Australian fishery with more people. And hopefully we can get some people out here to try it out. Mm. How much of it have you seen? Well, we're, we spend our weekends, obviously, we spend our evenings um, in the harbor. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of fishing around home in Sydney. But we spend a lot of time up the coast, up in that spot. Mm-hmm. We've, I've South been, Rocks, in Southwest yeah. Rocks. I've Not been well. to, to Tassie, mm-hmm. and obviously we go to New Zealand every few months. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melbourne, Have I you guess. caught a barramundi? No, and we had a barramundi trip, and we had to cancel it. So for my birthday, we're going barramundi fishing. Mm-hmm. Non-negotiable. Where and when? In April. In April, runoff time. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. We were supposed to have gone last March, but mm-hmm. we both, we had some work obligations, and mm-hmm. so we had to cancel. Mm-hmm. And then um, right now we're just fixated on marlin. I told you I caught my mm-hmm. first marlin last mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with marlin. Wonderful, wonderful. Fish. And, it's a uh, great year for marlin. But mm-hmm. my dream is I really want to get up to the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. But I'm just a little bit intimidated by it, so... No, no, no reason to be. No reason to be. Without question, you go to the Northern Territory, you go barramundi fishing. Yeah, it's it's pretty special. Well, I'm going. You go. You I go. You go, girl. <laughs> All <laughs> right. <I> say. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for your time. An absolute pleasure. Really thank you. April, it. thank you for taking the time to come up from Sydney to the beautiful Blue Mountains to talk to me. My been pleasure. A, been a pleasure. We'll do it again? Yeah, please do. Let's talk about you next time. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening, and I hope you tune in again soon. 